For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host and producer, Mike Madison. Before we get into today's show, Mike, I had an experience that I wanted to tell you about because uh, I thought it was just a really fascinating example in my own life of some of the principles that we have been talking about. So one of the points that comes up repeatedly is the death rate that's happening from drugs uh, and that it's not primarily caused by the drug itself. It's caused by the deregulation of those drugs. We don't know. People don't know what they're getting on the streets. So they don't know how potent it is. Or they don't know how pure it is. And so they're using more than they think they're using because we're not it's not dose right. at all. Um, so uh, the day after Easter, my little boy, who's four, we were at a ball game for one of my older sons. And he was coming out of the bathroom, stuck his little fingers in the crack of the door, and the heavy bathroom door shut on his finger. And it actually cut off the top oh. part of his finger. So we took him to the emergency room, um, and they gave him fentanyl. Which I, I was sitting there like, I can't believe I'm even Did you hear that before? <laughs> did, did they say that before or did they tell you they had just no, they given said, him? Yeah, they just talked about it very normally yeah. to, to each other. Yeah, right. I'm giving him, you know, so much, uh, you know, amount of fentanyl and whatever. And then they came back later and they gave him a little more. Yeah, we're going to give him a little more fentanyl. Um, and with the work that I do, fentanyl is is like the word of death. Oh, you yeah. Know, of Na- what's nationwide. Right. Yeah. Um, and I just thought this is crazy that this is so fentanyl dosed appropriately is used for all kinds of positive things including given to a four-year-old that if you if you dose it properly it is a painkiller that helps little boys who cut their fingers off uh in the door when it's on the street as it is through you know prohibition it's now being you know added in because they've created powdered forms of fentanyl uh, and it's coming in from China and they're putting it in through the mail and all of that fentanyl on the street unregulated is really really dangerous because it is really potent and powerful Um, but if we are able to regulate appropriately and allow people to access regulated things appropriately um, it's possible to dose something like fentanyl yeah that was just a crazy experience. That is interesting. Yeah, that's not a word you want to hear around your kids these right. days. Most people <laughs> right. can. Right, yeah. I mean, you have people dying. And people, from, I think a lot of know. people would, they would associate death with it and probably a lot of addiction. You know, people mm-hmm. would immediately hear that word and think, oh, my gosh, you're going to get my kid hooked on drugs or something, just not yeah. understanding the mechanisms of what fentanyl is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that you can use it for uh, really positive things. So right. they sewed his little finger back on, and hopefully it will be all okay Yeah. Uh, once the— cast comes off which being, being a, a parent time. is not always easy oh man no no it, it it is not but he is he's done great it's he just uses it like you know an arm even though it's you know all totally casted up to his elbow or up to his uh armpit they like have a full cast on it just even though it's the top of his finger but well the chicks dig that okay <laughs> My husband's been writing different things on his cast. Sometimes he lets people write on it. Most of the time, not. Um, <laughs> but he's had a great time with the cast tech who's been recasting it every time. He just thinks the whole process is, like, totally fascinating. Uh, what are you going to do? What color are you going to use of this thing? Oh, yeah, you, you get gonna, colors now, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. He gets to pick the color every time. Wow. Um, so, 
So we've had a lot of guests uh, recently. Um, we were just talking about foster care. And one of the things that um, I was talking about with Kelly after the show ended that I thought was a great point to, to bring up, because I know a lot of my fostering friends have this feeling um, of, and I, I sympathize with that as a former foster parent, of, no, you know, we have to protect kids. And the, one of the points Kelly was making after we ended the show was there's middle ground. We don't have to have just removal or not removal. And we just wipe our hands of the whole situation. There's lots of middle ground. We could put resources in the home. We could figure out what's going on. Maybe that isn't enough cause for removal, but is something that we might want to help the family deal with to to make the home, you know, more uh, functioning or healthier. Um, There's lots of middle ground. We don't have to use removal as the first option. Right. We can use it as the last option, the option of last resort as opposed to first resort. We'd say the same thing for the criminal justice system. We don't want it to be an option of first resort for drugs that's or or for lots of other things that maybe could be helped in different ways addressed at a community level or things like that uh, it's so traumatic and such a nuclear option in people's lives that we would want it to be a last resort not just a catch-all for everything when you know it doesn't help everything yeah there's been a kind of a movement in the united states particularly uh and i think people think it somehow empowers law enforcement or something, but this idea of zero tolerance. We've mm-hmm. just seen this to where everything is very black and white. If you cross a line, this is the response mm-hmm. to it. I mean, you've seen these stories of of kids who, you know, cut, uh, take a bite out of a cookie and it turns out to be the shape of a gun and they point it at another child and the kid is kicked out of school. I mean, and, and I know that's a kind of an uh, extreme example and not drug related, but it's this idea of zero tolerance where we have dis- we have put this line in the sand, and once you cross that line, we don't take into consideration any of the mitigating factors. We don't look at the circumstances or the environment or anything. This is how we act, and this is what's done. And that gives people an idea that we live in this really rules-based society, which always lets it puts everybody on notice that you don't cross this line. But it leaves out so many human factors mm-hmm. and, and just sets us into this course where there's just a tremendous amount of unfairness that ends up from things mm-hmm. like that. Zero tolerance, I think, is it's almost like we've decided we don't want to think about any of these cases or any of the circumstances and do what's in the best interest of the child or the mother or the family or the society. And look individually. Yeah. We just want one rule and we just apply it every time. Just doesn't matter. And we don't have to think about it. And I think that that's I think it probably appeals to the lawmakers, appeals to people who feel like they're really uh, uh, cracking down on something. But it is not at all helpful to people get caught up in it. Mm -hmm. So we're taking a break. Uh, today from guests to address a common theme that we hear from people about changing our um, drug laws. So a lot of times if I'm talking with somebody about it, they'll get, well, I don't know about this. Well, I don't know about that. And then they'll get to, I just don't think it could ever happen here in yeah, Mississippi. Right. And I, right. <laughs> I think this is an underlying thought for a lot of people. Like, even if I think we should change it, like, could that even really happen here? Um, and you think a lot of people had that conversation about civil rights in the 1930s yeah, and 40s, yeah. and so, you know, there's yeah. probably some other things too. I mean, yeah. it's just got to get it's got to get there, right? And every every major shift that we have taken in societies all throughout time, there's been long periods of time before those shifts where people said, "Well, that that will just never happen here. Yeah. That's never going to." And it and it does it will happen, and it does happen. It does take a lot of work 
to yeah. make it happen. If you're going to shift something where a lot of people are, you know, particularly making money off of it, well, that's you're going to have a, a big uphill battle. Right. So the drug war is a big money making machine for a lot of uh, organizations and businesses. So today we're going to address how does change actually happen? Because I absolutely believe that change can and will uh, happen here in Mississippi. If I thought it was hopeless, I would pack up and go work on something else. Because there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of other bad things in the world uh, that we could be working on. So um, I, I do not believe that. I absolutely believe. And the more, the longer that I work with In It For Good in Mississippi, um, the the more I'm certain that Mississippi can and will change. And a lot of people want change and are looking for um, other options if yeah. we put the right amount of effort in the right places. So um, we have listeners from other states and actually from a couple other countries as well, which is kind of exciting. So uh, if you think that this doesn't apply to you because you're not from Mississippi, I can assure you that we, um, we're some of the hardest ground to change. So if, if we can change things here, um, maybe not the principles. Not a very progressive state. <laughs> maybe the principles can apply anywhere. Um, we're pretty resistant to change. I'll give you an example of that. Mississippi was the first state to adopt alcohol prohibition before it was even federally prohibited. Mississippi had prohibited alcohol. And we were the last state to repeal alcohol prohibition. <laughs> uh, we didn't uh, repeal alcohol prohibition for over 30 years after it was repealed uh, federally. So I think of it this way. If Mississippi can change, then the South can change. And if the South can change, then the United States can change. And if the United States changes, we hold the keys on drug policy worldwide. Right, exactly. So to me, I think limitless possibilities. And as I see thoughts shifting in Mississippi, I have lots of hope for what's possible um, if we get behind it. So I want to walk through the process that I see and that I have seen kind of playing out of how we get change here. The key component to that is that more people need to change their minds. So as other states have brought ballot initiatives directly to the voters, it doesn't matter if you can get a ballot initiative to the voters if the voters won't actually vote for it right. um, to change it. So that that requires more people being educated, more people having a chance to learn. Specifically, we're talking about drugs and ending prohibition. So we need more people to change their minds before we can make some of these bigger steps. We can take a lot of smaller steps the legislature has been doing related to criminal justice reform, which is fantastic. Um, But in terms of actually regulating these substances, um, those are, I I think, going to come through ballot initiatives. That's how that's happened in other states. Almost every other state um, has brought it directly to the people, not through their uh, legislature. Well, in most change happens. I mean, if you look, uh, politicians... Uh, no offense, I hope I'll get you in trouble here, but a lot of politicians are cowards. You know, they really follow. And so the um, the population's attitude has to change first. And then politicians realize, oh, okay, it's more popular for me to now be on the side of change. But they resist it if they don't think the population's with them. So you mm-hmm. do. I mean, you have to change minds. Right. The people lead politicians. As much as we consider them our leaders, they respond to what people right. actually want. And in some cases, I mean, in some ways, that's a good thing because we we want them doing what we want them right. to do. But when we think that they will lead us into the things we need because we assume that they know the policy better yeah, than we do, right. uh, that's not helpful because a, a lot of times they are waiting until their constituents have changed their own minds on something. And then they say, OK, well, now I'll be willing to, to vote for that because the people that have voted me into office now want me to vote for that. So it can. Yeah, and um, in a lot of cases, they slow it down because of what we talked about. There's so many entrenched special interests in so many different issues, the drug issue being one of them, that a politician could even see the winds of change in their society going and, and grab a hold of that and lead you to a, a different outcome. 
but they actually speak against it, even though they may know common sense that this uh, a movement is good and all these other things. But they've got special interests that they're beholden to a lot of times or that they're cooperating with. And so they slow down the progress. You know, I don't know how many times you have a politician, uh, if you have a ballot initiative or you have some idea for change and it's gaining some popularity, but a very popular politician. And here in Mississippi, uh, a lot of times there'll be conservatives will stand up against it and make it sound like if you support this, you're not conservative. You know, and I'm sure liberal politicians do the same thing. They they try to dilute or change um uh, try to kind of defang a movement by conv- convincing people that, oh, that's not what we do. You need to think this through. And that's mm-hmm. what's a shame. They really stand in the way of, you know, I think I think people are much smarter than politicians think people are. And I think that it's uh, I think for people to realize the own the power that they have, people feel like, well, we don't have power. We have to wait for the legislature to act right. on these things. And they ask me all the time, have you taken this to the legislature? Have you gone to talk to the legislature? And I always say, well, for one, we're a nonprofit, so we can't do lobbying is not, you know, what what we can do. But for I wouldn't be doing that anyway. If I thought that was the way to go, I would I would have set up end it for good differently. I am convinced that the way to go is reaching the people of Mississippi. Absolutely. That's why we do book discussions. That's why I go speak for groups is because I want to engage the people of Mississippi because only when they get engaged in it and make it something that they want is the legislature right. going to move on it. So I don't see that as the place to start. I see that as the place maybe that it ends, uh, but I, it's always all about people yeah. and, and them changing their own minds. So if we think about drug prohibition as this, uh, let's think about it as this circle, drug prohibition, um, that we've been living under for decades now, there is a bigger circle that encompasses that circle, which is a massive amount of public and private pressure to maintain this criminal approach. So there's lots of people that are making money off of um, criminalizing drugs, all the industries that are supported through the prison system, um, and all of the uh, associations and uh, what do you call those, like the organizations that represent, you know, prosecutors and um, law enforcement and prison guards and yeah. uh, all of those associations are all uh, there's a lot of pressure uh, against changing our drug laws because it would mean a lot of uh, jobs that would not be there and we wouldn't need them anymore because we would have a lot less crime and a lot less things going through the courts. So the way that I see reform happening is for the public support for reform to create a bigger circle than that pressure to keep drug prohibition the way that it is. So we have to outpace the, the pressure that is already there to keep it, um, to create more pressure that actually moves us in the direction of reforming. And that happens as more people change their minds. Right. So um, I read this book early on when I was uh, doing this work. Somebody recommended it to me. They said, you know, it's not actually about drug policy, but all the principles in the book are actually really helpful for how you Uh, understand the process of how people change their minds and how you help them on that journey. So a lot of this content today is coming from um, a book called Stress-Free Sustainability by Adam Hams. Um, And it's so sustainability is like totally not at all what, what I'm working on, like environmental sustainability. But the book is so hell. All of the things he says about how people change their minds, I'm like, this is exactly the route that I took on this issue. Uh, because that is also a similarly emotionally charged issue for people. Yeah. And a lot of the the principles of how we think about how communicating about emotionally charged topics in ways that help people engage in them is all uh, kind of the same. So I, I thought it was 
all of these things I found to be really I helpful. thought that the way you changed minds was you got on Twitter and you called people <laughs> horrible names. <laughs> because that's what uh, Facebook and Twitter and, you know, you just get on your keyboard and you scream at a stranger and call them a Nazi or call them a libtard. And that's supposed to, you know, yeah. we have yeah, a, we are so work. bad about uh, attacking, which just solidifies people yeah. in their position and yeah. learning to engage people. I need to read this book. I do that. I do my own radio show where I'm very anti-war, but I speak to a conservative audience and all these other things. And yeah. uh, I need that book, too, because that is the struggle is trying to find. Um, and, and, and to me, I just don't know a better way to describe it than it's a waking up process. And it mm-hmm. just takes a couple of little things for just enough for people to go, huh, I hadn't looked at it that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And some people are open to that. And if you lob verbal grenades at them, right. they're not going to be able to say, hmm, hadn't thought about it that yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> They've got the guns out and they're they're in defense mode. Right. They're not in engagement never, mode. Uh, uh, ch- mind has never been changed on Twitter by an insult, yeah. ever. Yeah. Yeah. But it can be changed by thoughtful engagement. And that is that's very true. So one of the quotes Adam Ham says in this book, which has become like this, like motto for um, for my work, is he says, facts delivered poorly are facts to very few people. And I think that's so true. It doesn't matter how passionate you are about something. If you're delivering it in a way that people cannot hear, you're just throwing words at the wall. It doesn't matter how right you are if they can't hear it. They're not going to be able to uh, engage in it. So, an interesting thing on that, real quick. This is a. There was a, one of the. I can't remember the doctor's name, and I don't even remember the time period. So I'm being kind of sketchy, kind of uh, uh, vague with the story. The doctor who first realized that a real big problem with health was that doctors and surgeons were not washing their hands. Mm-hmm. And he realized that he w- he could stop the spread of infection and disease if we just got into hand washing. But apparently he was such an objectionable human being that nobody wanted to listen to him. He mm-hmm. was obnoxious about it. He was condescending about it. And so nobody listened to him for the longest time about hand washing, which now obviously surgeons mm-hmm. and doctors yeah. take. But it was his delivery of the message that mm-hmm. just couldn't break through. As common sense as it was, yeah. they still wouldn't listen to him. Yeah. So, so Adam Ham says we need to give up on being right in exchange for progress. It's better to have somebody take one step on the journey with us than it is for us to be to stick our flag in the right ground and they actually take a step away yeah, from us. <laughs> yeah, and that's tough too. For you know, that's it's tough. You want the whole thing. You want yeah, people to see what right. is common sense, real yeah. quickly. And yeah. if you feel passionate about it, it just uh, how can you not? Yeah, feel how can passionate? you not? How yeah, do you not see how do you this? not see this? So yeah. he says, don't be a killer bee. You need to be a sea otter. Now, sea otters are not. They look playful, and they they make you just want to get in the water with them, but they can protect themselves. That they're they're not just a pushover. Uh, but the killer bee approach just drives people away. You want the sea otter approach. You want to invite them to yeah. come and, and, and come with you on the journey of whatever your topic is for us as drugs. So then he goes into that there's three uh, ways that all of us think about any issue. Either we're in contempt, we don't agree with it. That could be like passive, like I've never thought about it. Or it could be active, like, no, I absolutely don't agree with you on this. Or we are cu- curious about it. We haven't maybe decided or we're considering whether or not we might be wrong about that or we're learning about it. Or we're in commitment. So we're either in contempt, curiosity, or commitment. All of us are in one of those areas for all the things that we have in our lives. Um, now, we live most of our lives with things that we're in commitment to because it's really stressful to be in curiosity where you're not sure right. yeah, like oh we don't like to live in that we like to live in things we feel certain about yeah 
Now, maybe going back to what you're saying, maybe that's why we like this. We've, we've gotten even more into this kind of, you know, uh, black and white approach because it feels like there's no uncertainty. There's no vulnerability. So you have to be vulnerable if you're going to be curious about something. And you have to continue to explore it, which mm-hmm. means you have to kind of seek out more knowledge. And yeah. really, I think that's, that's where a lot of people yeah. short the, the fall short. They're just yeah. they'd rather have somebody tell them quickly what the, you know, and yeah. move on. So a lot of us are trying to get people from contempt to commitment. And he says, you can't do that. You can't, nobody goes from contempt to commitment. You have to go through each of the stages. So if you want to get them to be committed to your cause, you need to let them be curious and you need to invite them to be curious. To do that, you have to provide safety in the way that you talk about it so that they feel like they can explore and they're not just going to get their head cut off right. you know, by asking a question you don't like right. or you know something like that. Um, so some people don't ever change their minds. And to me, if somebody's willing to come and engage and learn and they say, you know what, I just am still not on board, I respect that because I, I, I think you're engaging, you're learning, and now you're making a decision. You don't agree with, with what I think the facts uh, you know, say, but you're engaging with it, and that's okay. It, my job is not – I can't force people to change their minds. I can invite them to consider changing their minds. So uh, when I was first thinking about publicly talking more about this, I thought, you know, people are going to think I'm nuts about this. Um, And in the book, he talks about that very thing. I'm reading through this book. I'm like, this is exactly all the things I thought about. (laughs) The process of changing my own mind, plus then thinking, gosh, if I talk about this, what if people think I've just lost my mind? Are they going to be thinking that I'm about to, like, renounce my Christian faith at any moment? Like, right. what kind of – and one of my, like, greatest fears is being misunderstood. So uh, the thought of, like, oh, they're going to misunderstand me. They're not going to understand. This took me a long time to come to understand this whole issue, and I'm going to be misunderstood. Am I willing to, to, to risk that? to talk about something and eventually decided there's too much harm being done. I, I want to do that. And now I run a nonprofit uh, for it. So he talks about th- three buckets that people have. Um, and if you add, when you ask the question, will people think that you're crazy if you start talking about changing something like our drug policies? Uh, he says, well, that depends. It depends on where you fall in the number of times that they've heard other people talk about whether or not it's crazy. So the first time, that I'll give my own example. The first time that anybody ever said to me, what do you think about legalizing drugs? I mean, I could not even comprehend that that phrase had come out of their mouth. Like, how could you even be talking about this? I just feel angry, defensive. I I can't even process what you just said. Like, complete crazy bucket. This is so insane that you're even talking about this. But over time, again, hear a little thing here, a little thing there. And uh, in the book, he says the goal is when it's coming from somebody who has who trusts, you know, if I hear it from someone that I trust, I might think the thing they're saying is crazy, but I don't think they're crazy. So now I have this other bucket that's like crazy with an asterisk. What, are they, what could they possibly <laughs> see in that? I mean, they're right. very they seem yeah. very normal. Right. Yeah. So ah, we've got this kind of mid ground uh, and then a few more touches and people begin to wonder could there be something to this? Because now I've heard multiple people that I respect mention this. Maybe they're not even saying we need to do it. Maybe they're just saying they're learning about it, or maybe we need to consider doing something different. Um, We don't want to be in, we don't want to be left when other people have already moved on an issue. And so even, even us having the experience of our friends moving on an issue creates a lot of discomfort for us. The feeling like, wait, 
I thought we were all understood this together and I thought this was settled. Yeah. And now I'm now I'm hearing people say they don't think it's settled anymore. That's stressful. And that's just the experience of having a belief challenge. Now, you may not decide you want to change your belief, uh, but if you hear about it enough, which is why it's so crucial for people, if they agree with it, to, to just start putting out a little something here and there about it, because that's the process for people to actually consider whether or not it could be true, is to have several touches with people they trust where they're saying, I don't know, I think maybe we could be wrong about this. We need to learn more about it, but I think maybe we could be wrong. It only takes a few touches for people to begin to feel that foundation shaking for themselves, wondering if perhaps, you know, something could be different. But that's stressful. It's stressful to embrace that. That's the journey I'm asking people to come on uh, with considering if we've been wrong about drugs. It's stressful to consider whether or not something we have believed our whole lives is wrong. It's stressful to consider whether something that the vast majority of the criminal justice system is enforcing and is working, a lot of our crime is related to that. It's stressful to consider whether or not that's wrong. We've been that wrong about yeah. about something like this. And people don't like to move first. You know, they don't, particularly if they're, you know, you could approach somebody, but if they're, you know, their bigger friend group or their family is totally still in the in the prohibition world. It's very difficult for them to be the one part person at mm-hmm. Thanksgiving that says something about this. <laughs> you know, they they talk about people being in a movie theater and, you know, people can smell smoke. But instead of, you know, jumping up and saying, oh, my gosh, I smell smoke, and they call people's attention to it, instead they look around at everybody else in the movie theater. They don't want to be the first person to say anything until, you know, until everybody is looking around and they go, okay, yeah. we all smell this, right? You know what I mean? There's just yeah. – it's, it's tough for people to be a first mover. Yeah. They're, it's a, The early adopters have, have – they're the ones who get all of that negative response. Of, oh, right, you're, right. What? Yeah. Are you crazy? Do you know what happened to my sister? Do you know what happened to um, – so you're, you're kind of um, embracing the brunt of those initial emotional reactions. That's that's hard to do. But when you get to commitment, which is why we live most of our lives here, there's a sense of relief. You've made a decision. And so for most of for, so for me, I felt a great sense of relief all of my life supporting drug prohibition. It was something I thought I have made a decision about this. This is the right way to handle these things. It became stressful when I began to consider whether or not that could be wrong. But once I ended up where I am now, I'm back in the relief category. I'm not stressed out about it anymore. Um, well, that's it, cognitive dissonance is a little bit. Of, you started to take in some other facts that that can make you uncomfortable. You right. know, you just when you when the new facts don't align with your old point of view, that's uncomfortable. And you right. you either it seems to me you go one of two ways. You just ignore the new facts and go right yeah. back to where you were, or you take them and you try to you know you, you try to plan it out. You try to figure it out. What's the best thing? Is it, I'm curious with you. Because you've a conservative upbringing, uh, Christian upbringing, and everything, is this the first thing you really took kind of a, just a different turn than everybody else on? Yeah, I think so. I don't think I, I've never been like a super politically involved person or anything like that. I just that's not my natural inclination of interest in policy. And I just thought, you know, I mean. The United States has been going for a long time. Surely, whatever laws we have, they've got to be about right. Yeah. So I can just kind of shut that off. So you just kind of moved because, along with the with yeah, the system, went with, with the flow, with and, the flow, yeah. and yeah, I don't, I didn't, I've never been. A, I have been a. I feel like my personality is bent towards kind of a crusader type of personality. I feel deeply the beliefs that I have. Um, I empathize deeply with people and their 
lives and their experiences. Um, but that was always directed in other areas. So for a lot of years, um, all of my adult life, I started in college. I'm 35 now. Um, this is the first for, let's see, 13 out of those 15 years, I was a ministry leader at various ministries in our church. So first it was a tutoring ministry, then a foster care ministry, then a family preservation ministry, trying to help families not get their kids in foster care, providing support ahead of the system. Um, So I, I definitely always was trying to figure out how is it we can make society better Um, But that never took me into uncomfortable things until I started looking at 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 the bigger causes of some of those things. Why is foster care the way that it is? Why are family family preservation so hard to do? Why is education so disproportionate? And then you start going up that stream and you realize drug prohibition is affecting all of these things. That cracks me up because I can just imagine your friends and your family watching you go through life and just think, oh, she's just so sweet. Look at her and she's doing all this stuff with her church and she's, oh, she's a leader in this ministry. And and then all of a sudden, she what? (laughs) (laughs) Legalizing drugs. drugs. (laughs) Yeah, that must have been an interesting sell at first. Yeah, 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 it is. And But so many people over time have come up to me who are never commenting on anything on Facebook and said, I really appreciate what you're doing. And it's really made me think about it. Or it's really, I feel like you're fighting for people who can't fight for themselves. Or I feel like you're fighting for people like my family member who is incarcerated right now. Or like my mom who struggled with addiction during my growing up. Or, you know, the, the I think people, it, it is uncomfortable, but they they feel that it is a movement of compassion. It is, they don't feel from me and they won't feel from end up for good that we're out there going, we've taken this drug thing too seriously. We just need to lay off and let people just, you know, use drugs. It's really not that bad. Never saying that. End up for good's never saying that. Right. We're saying, we want to help people thrive. How can we help them do that? And well, I think that, it, that makes your message can... more powerful, too. The place that you come at it from makes, I believe, makes you a more powerful voice for it because there are those people on the other side right. that are, let us just do our own thing. If I want to do smack, let me do smack, leave me alone. And that's not a sell for the person that's trying to, just starting to uh, think about this. Yeah. It's not a plea to empathy. It's not a plea to common sense. It's not a plea to anything except just kind of what people see as nastiness in our society. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, that's, I think that's yeah. to your credit. Yeah. It makes it easier for you. Yeah, you can, people see there's there's other ways of thinking about it than just being pro-drug. Right. Oh, this exactly. is nuanced. Yeah. This is, there's other things I can agree with here. So, um, so that has really helped me. So, that, so End It For Good is always trying to occupy this curiosity space. So we want to provide opportunities for people to be engaged on the commitment level, too. But um, we are always trying to stay in the curiosity space. How can we help more people take the first step on the journey? Um, how can we help them uh, make put a toe in the water? We want to be. We want to occupy that space. We don't just want to be over on this side and circle the wagons and go. Okay, we've got our group now. We're just now we can just start lobbing grenades at all the people that don't agree with us. Right. Like that. That's not what I want because what I really want is for our hearts to change about how we think about people and the best way to help people. And uh, for that to happen, people have to be safe enough to feel safe enough to really empathize with the experiences of other people, and safe enough to feel like they can consider. Uh, other things. So that's how I'm convinced that change uh, is going to happen here. 
Um, that's the kind of interaction that I want. Um, if people post things that are really nasty on our Facebook page, I individually message them and just say, you know what, you are entitled to free speech, but I just wanted to tell you how we approach this. We don't want that. We really want to invite people to participate and to be curious and to do that. We have to give them space to do that. And what I found is people are very respectful of that, you know, and they post it on their own page or whatnot. Um, But that's something that that's a culture for me for end it for good. That's really important because it is the only way that I was able to move on this issue. If people had been lobbing grenades at me or telling me what an awful person I was that I was supporting this, how could I have even considered any of the research that was out there that I didn't know about? I couldn't have. Right. So I'm I'm always going to be fiercely protecting that for people to have the opportunity to change their mind without being called names and told that they don't know anything or, you know, whatnot. Um, You're bucking the trend right now because I tell you what, the level of hate and anger and we feel like a very agitated and aggressive society right now. I think social media has brought that out. It's highlighted it. It's heightened it for a lot of people. So, yeah. um, you know, and it's not, it doesn't doesn't serve any purpose, but just generate anger and hostility yeah, between push people. people further there's, away. There's just no way. What are those who convince against their will are, are of the same opinion right. still? Yeah. I mean, yep. probably yep. even worse. Yeah. And we want to actually see change. So we wanted we want more people to change their minds. Right. And we're coming at it. Uh, from a, a place to give them that opportunity to consider and change their mind. So how do you become part of that journey on this issue um, with us? We're going to talk about that next week. In the meantime, make one touch with one person to invite them on this journey. That is how this movement grows, by people saying, you know, I can just put one thing out there. I can maybe make a post on Facebook, or I can invite somebody to read a book. Um, if you're in Mississippi, uh, we will send you a free copy of Chasing the Scream, the book that we do book discussions about. You can just email us at podcast.endifforgood.com. Uh, let us know where to send it, and we'd love to send it to you. We'll send you the information about um, where we're going to be doing discussions, and we'd love to have you um, come to that as well. So join us next week as we talk about specifically what has happened with End It For Good over the last six months. It's been a whirlwind ride of growth, and then um, how you can be part of that. Uh, whether or not you're in Mississippi, um, we hope that this helps on a national level, too. We want to change our own state, but we hope that we are providing resources that help nationally for this conversation to move, move forward. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.